Hi, Mind, Body, Green family and listeners. Welcome to our beauty podcast, Clean Beauty School. I'm your host, Mind, Body, Green beauty director, Alexandra Engler. Today, I want to talk about ingredient lists, or as they're often called in the biz, inky lists. And I want to spend an entire episode talking about this because, well, they can be really confusing. And this confusion has led to quite a bit of misinformation out there. And here's the thing. People want to understand how to read their inky lists. Now more than ever, the modern beauty consumer is an informed beauty consumer. You can see this in shopping habits. Rather than casually purchasing items that are at the drug or department store, people take their time, they do their research, they read reviews, they look up words on ingredient databases, and so on. Clearly, people want to know about what's in their products, if they're safe, and what they're going to do for your skin. But I will say this, I'm a beauty director. I study labels. It's a big part of my job to make sure that the products that I'm recommending to our readers and our audience are safe and effective. But even I have a lot to learn about the intricacies of labels and various ingredients. So the fact that common people who do not do this for a living, if they have issues with it, well, that's perfectly understandable. And to help me break this down, I brought in a cosmetic chemist, Krupa Kostelein. Cosmetic chemists are the real heroes of the beauty industry. They formulate your products, they stay up to date on the latest research, regulations, trends, and so on, so they can make products that serve the consumer and where the market is headed. And Krupa, I might add, identifies as a clean cosmetic chemist, so she can actually help us better understand what it means to be clean and how to find the safest formula out there. Without further ado, Hey, Krupa. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm very excited. Thank you for having me. Sure. I can't wait to talk about this. This is one of my uh, favorite subjects. So I want to start off by letting you introduce yourself. How did you become interested in becoming a cosmetic chemist? You know, what what is your interest in clean beauty? Where did that journey start from? Just, I, I would love to hear more about your career and how you got to where you are. Yeah, definitely. So I grew up in India and then moved to the United States uh, when I was 19 to finish my studies as a biotechnologist. And back then I wanted to be a genetic engineer and I was really, really into biology. But while I was pursuing my master's in Long Island, I got hired as an intern at Estee Lauder and my lab, my skin biology lab ended up right next to the Bobby Brown lipstick lab. And so there was no going back for me because I fell in love uh, with everything cosmetic and, you know, fell in love with with the whole process of how products get made. And and of course, you know, I, I used to use a whole bunch of their stuff too. So it was great. And that's how I get, got started. I also had a really good mentor at Estee Lauder who was, who was fantastic and who really supported me and kind of, you know, pushed me forward. And I think that that was also one of the major reasons why I loved it so much. And um, yeah, the, after that, there was just, I moved after the Estee Lauder, I moved to, so so the research that I did at Estee Lauder got published in the Journal of Immunology. It was a really successful internship. And then after, right after that, I moved to LA to, and got hired by Neutrogena to run their technical assurance team. And so I overall had like a really good start to my career, I want to say with, you know, big company names, but then quickly I decided to move away from it. I really decided to focus on clean beauty and, you know, have been now in the clean beauty sector, you know, focusing on natural and organic cosmetics for about 10 years now. So, yeah. 
that's my story. I, I love hearing about how, how cosmetic chemists get their start in the industry because it's just it's such a job that I'm fascinated with. And I also love when people make that shift from more traditional beauty to clean and natural beauty because it's it's a shift that I made myself. You know, I, I used to, to focus on more traditional beauty coverage. And then, you know, eventually I decided that clean and natural was more in my point of view as somebody who enjoyed beauty. Did, did you feel the same too? Was there a point where you were like, oh, I resonate with clean and natural beauty more. And that's why you decided to go down this path. So I always, you know, growing up in India and growing up around Ayurveda and, and growing up around like holistic, holistic remedies and holistic herbs and like growing up a vegetarian I think that I've always been like I've always resonated with natural more natural ways of doing things and you know my mom used to always like reach for turmeric instead of band-aid when I got hurt and you know it's just like it, it has it's ingrained in me and so I didn't realize that like cosmetics was not a big deal like cosmetics was not this big industry that it is now so I never even imagined a career in, in cosmetics like that was a thing right it, it so it was like okay, I'm going to do medicine or I'm going to do engineering or I'm going to, you know, do genetics, which is like all really cool stuff. But nobody thought about cosmetic industry they do now. And uh, so, yeah, it it has been very interesting to me. But uh, yeah, I think I think it found me somehow. The, The clean beauty movement married your past and how you grew up with, you know, what you wanted to do. Definitely. Okay, so I want to lay the groundwork on what we mean by clean, because we know that there's no actual definition of it. Different retailers might have their own set of criteria that they hold their beauty standards against, whether it's Credo or Sephora or Target. So I actually wanted to take a second and talk about these retailers. Over the last several years, we have seen a big push in the market to offer more natural and clean products. And with this push, these retailers have started releasing their very own quote unquote no lists. So at the very least, the consumer knows what's not in the products. Credo's dirty list contains over 2,700 ingredients ranging from environmental toxins, carcinogens, and common allergens. Sephora's Clean Seal has 50 plus banned ingredients. Target's Clean Seal has 14 banned ingredients. There's obviously a bunch of organizations that have their own seals and they have their own standards. What do you consider clean and what is your definition of clean and how does that fold into your work? So I agree with you. There's there's no real definition of clean or natural for that matter. We all assume that natural means something that comes from botanicals or but petroleum is natural too in a way. So it kind of gets, it kind of gets hazy there. But but to me, when I formulate a clean product, I think my most important consideration is safety. I think that a safe product is a clean product, safe not just to yourself but also to the environment. You know, overall safe, not just safe in safe in in the short term, but safe in the long term and safe with everything else that's going on. So really, I think that to me, clean clean beauty is safe, safer beauty safe beauty. And I love that you bring up the point that it's not only safe for putting on your body, putting on your skin, putting on your hair, but it's it's safe for the environment. Can you explain that a little bit more and how you use the environment as a lens to define clean? Yeah, so it's just like everything that has been going on, right? Like I have evolved in my viewpoint of clean as well because of all the stuff that's been going on. Like in the beginning, when I first started in the clean sector, it was all about like natural and naturally derived. Clean is only like, I think, being used recently. 
yeah. when we have now come face to face with the environmental impact of some of these ingredients that we use like you know palm oil for example like there's so much deforestation that that goes on in the in like the entire indonesia we we've we ruined tropical forests because of the palm needs and and so just being mindful overall of like what you're using and what that is doing to the environment like bakuchiol for example too was you know really we had to find like sustainable sources for it and make sure that we're not completely ruining the the plant and you know and then also i think mica and and making sure that that comes from a sustainable source and not not you know false practices around sourcing it or anything like that You just heard her mention ethical concerns surrounding mica, so I wanted to provide some more context. Mica is a naturally occurring sparkling mineral that is often used in shimmery makeup products. But several years ago, a few bombshell reports came out around mica mining and child labor in parts of India and Africa, where mica is traditionally found. Since, brands and nonprofits have tried investigating the supply chain of the ingredient, hoping to ensure that the mining practices are ethical throughout. If you want to learn more and find brands committed to using only ethically sourced mica, you can check out the Responsible Mica Initiative. So I think that overall, like even my viewpoint has evolved, and now today I'll say that yeah, I would include environment. I would definitely take that into consideration because of what's going on and because of how it eventually ends up affecting us anyway. So I think I think a broader perspective is uh, needed. And I think, yeah, I definitely employ it. Yeah, you've mentioned several things I'll try to circle back to later because you, you brought up some talking points that I, I would love to get your opinion on, but I'll move on to the next thing I want to chat about. Yeah. I want to get your take on the importance of understanding how to read an inky list for the consumer. You know, I think I think it's something that so many consumers are interested in, especially nowadays. I think people, I think they love reading ingredient databases. I think that people, they, they are so hungry for information about what's in their products. And I think that's that's an incredible thing. I think that's a good thing. I think it, it's better when there's a well-informed consumer. But that's not to say that consumers are perfect at reading them. I think there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to reading them. So I, I just want to get your take on like, why is it so important that people understand how to read an ingredient list? Yeah, I, I kind of smiled when I when I when I read your your question about this too. Like, uh, inky lists is is very is very interesting, right? Like, I think that. I would I would really hope that we eventually become a sector where you don't need to be well versed in ingredient lists. I think it's I think it's wrong for for companies to expect consumers to be like to know and research every single ingredient and you know figure it out. I think that that's just not okay. So I am not pro that, but I also really really like how people are asking the right questions and they are being so mindful and they are because that is what moves the industry, right? That is what makes, like, that is why this clean beauty movement right now is going on right now, because people have started reading ingredient lists and people expect better from brands. So so it it's really fantastic to see. And yeah, you know, it, it does come with a grain of salt. Like it does have, it's, it's you know, I think that it, it like something like comedogenic, is is like definitely like a word that not many people understand and not really people people don't really understand how it came about and how people how people just started reading products as comedogenic i think that 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 is the bad part about you know people being not thinking they know everything but not but then at the same time it's a positive too that 
people have started like consumers have started asking the right questions they have started asking like i know i noticed like the the a couple of weeks ago that there was this question on instagram on a brand's uh, new launch their vitamin c launched and somebody was asking like this technical questions of like what percentage vitamin c and and which which derivative of vitamin c and i was like i was you know it made me smile i'm like okay this is fantastic like you were you were asking for transparency which is so cool so i'm i'm all for it yeah i loved your first point that it shouldn't it shouldn't really be up to the consumer to be experts at this you know everyone has everyone has their own lives that they need to live they shouldn't you shouldn't you shouldn't have to have a baseline knowledge in chemistry to to make sure that what you're putting on your body is safe i that is such a fantastic point exactly i i think that i would get so frustrated if i was a consumer that did not know i would be so frustrated and actually i am a consumer that does not know like i'm a vegetarian i'm a vegetarian and so like so so in india everything that is vegetarian and everything that is non vegetarian is marked with either red or green right so anything like anything is either it has a red square or a green square and that's like super easy because you could just look at the label and see if it's red square green square okay or not right it's easy in america there's no nothing like that so i remember a lot like couple lots of actually i want to say like at least 7 years ago when i when i was like newly shopping at whole foods right i was like okay this is whole foods like how bad can it be and i remember picking up a jar picking up a jar of salsa that had like fish in it and i was like like how do like how does this even work like <laughs> why is there fish in salsa you know and i think i think i think that's when i realized that this actually is a horrible thing that i have to read every single ingredient list to at a, at a store to figure out what i should be using like you have to do so much research before buying anything i think that's just not okay i don't think that's sustainable no yeah. it's, it shouldn't take this much work <laughs> yeah but having said all that, you know, in the meantime, I do think the consumer does want to be educated about what they're putting on their skin. And yeah. there is this hunger for understanding how formulas work and how they're structured and how they're presented on products. So, you know, when you when you scan an ingredient list, let's start with the basics. What do you notice when, when you look at an ingredient list and how how should you read it? Like, do you read it top to bottom? Does that affect the percentages in it? Give me give me the basics. Okay, so the way that I look at a, at an ingredient list, right? So, number one, I look at the first three ingredients to really let me know what it's composed of, because the first three ingredients is basically what the product is composed of, mainly. So it's usually like butylene glycol or propylene glycol or water and aloe vera juice, and that's gonna tell me a lot because that's what comprises most of the formula. Then I do read all the the whole ingredient list. I'll see what the preservation system they are using, right? If if it's phenoxyethanol, if it's sodium benzoate, if it's whichever one that they are using. So I'll I'll look at that, and then I'll look at I'll usually look at whether there's synthetic ingredients or ingredients that are that are of concern, like pegs, quaternium five, formaldehyde releasers, or a amines or you know ethoxylated products or anything like that that'll tell me whether a product is really natural or clean or not and yeah and then lastly i'll look at a fragrance i'll look at where the fragrance is coming from like i'll you know i'll smell the product and then i'll be like okay so 
what is this? Is it an essential oil? Is it a fragrance? If it's a fragrance, then, you know, does raise a red flag. If it's not a fragrance, then what kind of oils are these? And then, yeah, I think that's where I would start. I, you know, you mentioned a few of the things like the major red flags for ingredient lists. You know, this is talked a lot in the industry right now because no lists are such a big thing. You know, so many different organizations or retail organizations will have their own no lists. You mentioned a few, but can you just explain a little bit more about what your personal no list is and explain perhaps why some of those things that you mentioned you, you don't want to use in your own products? Yeah, so I think so so I I don't use a lot of products that have like that have concerns around them like any or any question of concerns even if they are not really proven to be bad for you if it is a certain kind of ingredient I'll assume that it's bad for you and then I won't even use it I'll tr- I'll won't use it I just won't sure. use it right like cyclic silicones Let's take a quick moment to talk about silicones. We know that this ingredient is a touchy subject in beauty. Some people try to avoid them altogether. Some are fine with certain silicones, but not others. Some people don't really pay attention to the ingredient at all. Well, you just heard her mention a very specific type of silicone. She says she avoids cyclic silicones, which I want to bring up here. These are a type of silicone that are restricted in Europe and Canada because they are shown to cause buildup in water waste. Remember, just because you wash something off of your face or your body doesn't mean that it disappears. Things that release formaldehyde or things that contain or can contain 1,4-dioxane, which is an impurity, because all of those things are either carcinogens or they cause organ toxicity or they are endocrine disruptors or for one reason or the other, like they're just not okay. And and most of the brands that have no-no lists, and I'm saying most of the brands that have no-no lists, conveniently keep these out of their no-no list so you have to be very careful of of what like the product you can't i I don't really trust just what i see i'll look at the ingredient list before Okay. And I think in doctrine disruptors, that's a word that's thrown around so much, especially in the beauty industry. But I feel like sometimes people don't fully understand what that means. I think they just say it and don't necessarily um, get the full context. Can you just define it for us? Sure. Sure. So endocrine disruptors are molecules or compounds that um, act as your, no, that, that basically disrupt your hormonal system, right? Mm -hmm. So they do this in multiple ways. One of the ways is they either mimic uh, a hormone. So they mimic estrogen or they mm. mimic whichever hormone. And then they bind to the receptors that estrogen would usually bind to, right? So your body thinks that you have all this estrogen that you don't actually have, right? And so it'll do all the things it's supposed to do when they do when you do have estrogen, right? Sure. Like all kinds, like, like growth hormones, like there mm-hmm. are th- there are things that would you know that have growth hormones that you can have tumors because yep. there's you know your body thinks that you have growth hormones and it's supposed to grow when it it's not so it, there's a lot of things that can happen there's neurotoxicity because of these endocrine disruptors there's there's cancer there's lots of lots of different effects that you would normally see when you are like in when you have hormone imbalance right your skin can of course be affected but that's like you you have a lot of different outcomes and the worst part is that you can't really link anything to the outcome like the outcome could be anything because hormones do such hormones play such a big part in 
your system you know yeah. so so it's not like oh like this this causes this not like that you you don't really know what might happen yeah it's 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 hard to prove causation with it correct correct yeah and that's what makes it particularly frustrating because yes. you wish that you could yes. just have the science that says that you know if you use this product with xyz ingredient it causes this but you know we it's hard to create that science yes so one thing that i want to bring up because I feel that preservatives often get a bad name in beauty. You know, of course, there are some preservative systems that we tend to stay away from in the clean and natural space, but you know, for some products at least, you do need some sort of preservative system, especially if you have, you know, a water base. Can you explain one, why we need preservative systems or in what cases we would need a preservative system? And then what sort of options can you look for in the clean and natural space? Yeah. So yes, traditional preservation systems are definitely not welcome in the clean beauty space for several reasons. And as far as clean preservative alternatives go, we do have a lot to work with. There's there's sodium benzoate, there's potassium sorbate, there's sodium levulinate, there is capril hydroxamic acid, there is sal acid, there is a lot of different acetylhexylglycerin, capillocycol, like lots of different alternatives that, that exist. But because these actives or these preservatives are not broad spectrum, which means they don't protect against everything, you have to be careful about what, what systems you're using and what products. So like, for example, cleansers have a very high water content. So, so they need to be preserved much more effectively than a moisturizer sure right? also if a moisturizer is going in a jar versus if it's going in a pump the preservation system can be changed because a jar product would need much you know a broader spectrum and a much much a robust preservation system is that because you're to, putting your hand in the jar yeah yep and and because the product is exposed to air so many times and you're putting your hand in the jar. So because of those things, it needs to be preserved a little bit more robust, right? So, and you want it to be preserved robust. You don't want, you know, to get an infection. That's no. the last thing you want. And and those things do happen. So I think that are are good and they absolutely you need need preservatives in your, in your system, but it really depends on what kind of product it is. Sure. I want to talk a little bit more in depth about the, the idea of ingredient order. You know, you mentioned that when you look at an inky list, you know, you notice the first three ingredients and you hone in on those because you know that that is going to be, that's going to tell you a lot. But when it comes to the actives in ingredient lists, it's not always so straightforward just because we know that some actives don't need to be formulated at too high of a concentration or whatever it is. So how do you decode ingredient order if you're looking at something? Is there a way to kind of suss out that? I know this is a broad question, but I'm curious about this as well. Okay, so when it comes to ingredient lists, yes, there is a method to decoding them. And according to the FDA, according to the rules of labeling, we everything goes in a decreasing order, but only up to when a certain ingredient reaches 1% concentration. So everything below 1% concentration can be listed in any order, Okay. whatever order you want. So like very interesting is just because a fragrance is listed the last or just because a preservative is listed last does not mean it is at mm. a, the lowest concentration, right? Sure. It's perceived that way, but it's not always like that because basically anything under 1%, you can do, you can place it wherever you want. 
And, you know, I think this is something that comes up a lot when we talk about actives, because we know that certain actives, you know, they, they don't need to be formulated at a certain percentage to, to do their job or to do the work. Correct. So I think a lot of times, you know, I'll get, you know, friends or whomever will ask me about an, an inky list and they'll be like, well, I don't understand why this ingredient is not the first or it's not like high up at the top and I have to explain to them and I'm like well you know it's, it's an ingredient that perhaps doesn't need to be formulated at, at, at such a concentration that would put it there are that what are, what are some examples of those like is vitamin c one or you know I'm just trying to think of examples of what those good ingredients might be that we don't need to have them at high concentrations yeah that is a really really good point and I'm glad that you're uh, educating around this because <laughs> yes there is a big perception around like active ingredients needing to be higher up in the ingredient list it's not true vitamin c there are some vitamin c derivatives that cannot be used more otherwise they are co- they are going to cause sensitization they are going to mm. cause rashes and and you don't want that so vitamin c i would say is one retinol you don't want crazy amounts of retinol in, <laughs> in your skin in your skincare there's i think aha's too you should not i i i tell people not to use crazy amounts of AHAs as well or be careful uh, while using those and then there's also a very cool example of vitamin E that not not a lot of people know but like um, vitamin E in fact if you use more than a certain percentage of vitamin E it's gonna cause rancidity Mm. but if you use if you use less than that it's gonna prevent rancidity wow so it really is it's a science and there's a reason why it's a science and and so it's not as easy as okay let me just read an ingredient list and then is this the second ingredient is vitamin c the second ingredient if not it's not a good product like no that's not that's not how this works (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, that's that's interesting about vitamin e i didn't know that you know something that you brought up earlier is this idea of trying to understand how comedogenic a product is you know comedogenic if any listener doesn't know it's it's a, basically just a word to describe how likely a product is to clog your pores. And there are some ingredients out there that are generally understood to be more comedogenic than others, but that doesn't necessarily translate to products. Can you explain this concept a little bit more? I know this is something that you're interested in. Yes, I am very interested in talking about this, um, <laughs> but mainly because there's like a lot of there's so much misconception. So so comedogenic, like you said, yes, is defined as anything that can clog your pores, right? Or or cause breakouts. And this can be any kind of breakouts. It could be whiteheads, blackheads, acne, any kind of breakouts. Now, the reason why so so the way that things used to be tested back in the day to be comedogenic or not mm-hmm. was through was through rabbit ear method. Okay, yes, you heard that correctly. This is called the rabbit ear method. It dates back to the 70s and has been a somewhat confusing guide to comedogenesis ever since. Products and ingredients are rated on a scale of zero, or not comedogenic, to five, very comedogenic. However, as you'll hear Krupa explain soon, there isn't a scientific consensus around this method, and you'll understand why it's a little problematic. So they used to apply the product on the skin of the ear of a rabbit and see whether it caused clogged pores or not. This was great because the ear of the rabbit it was way more sensitive than human skin. It's much more sensitive um, than human skin. So what happened was we do we did find ingredients that are non-comedogenic, right? Because if it's non-comedogenic in, in the sensitive skin, it's gonna be non-comedogenic for us, right? Sure. But, but then they found all these comedogenic ingredients 
in the rabbit ear that were labeled comedogenic because it was comedogenic in that sensitive area. But when the, when you apply it on human skin, they were not. Sure. Right? Like one of the examples is coconut oil. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a common one that always comes up. People who with acne are, are afraid yeah. to use it. It's it's ridiculous how, how people have like such a big misconception around, around coconut oil. And I actually went looking the other day for the original study and I couldn't find it. I couldn't find the original study that categorized coconut oil as comedogenic. And there's also this list circulating the internet of like all the comedogenic ratings of all the oils and everything. And I couldn't even find the origin, the original, original list in like a scientific study because you would, you would assume that it needs to come from a scientific study, right? I couldn't find the study. Couldn't find it. So I don't know where it came from, but coconut oil is in fact composed mainly of lauric acid and lauric acid is proven in a scientific study to be, to reduce acne and to to be like, to be anti-acne, right? It's an anti-acne ingredient. So it's just, uh, yeah, it's my pet peeve. Comedogenic is my pet peeve for sure. (laughs) I've definitely looked into this as well, just for editorial reasons. And you're correct. There hasn't been much modern literature on what oils and what botanical extracts are actually comedogenic and what are not. And it's also, I mean, hypothetically, even if one of these oils was more comedogenic than the others, if you're formulating it in a product, it sometimes it mitigates the comedogenicity of the yeah, ingredient. It's, because- to- it's totally different. Totally different. You're 100% right. Like when something gets formulated in a product, be it comedogenic or non-comedogenic, when it gets formulated in a product, you have no idea whether it's going to be comedogenic or not. And it, it like, especially in emulsions, right? Not in, not in like, let's straight, straight oils. I think there's less chance of that in straight oils but if it is in like a moisturizer or an emulsion for sure these ingredients are going to be they're going to behave totally different in an emulsion versus you know on their own so yes it is very like unfortunate that we categorize those ingredients that way yeah it's a hard topic to discuss because people want to know it so badly and of course you do if you're somebody who's prone to breakouts you want to know if something might cause you a breakout but unfortunately there's just not the data that's available to like really suss out this stuff alcohol is another tricky ingredient that i want to get your take on we know that some alcohols are very drying you know we know that from hand sanitizers notably i'm sure most of us are using them a lot more but you know the alcohol also reminds me of you know back when i was a teen of the super stringent toners that that you know they were marketed for acne and you know they were just loaded with drying alcohols so we so alcohols and beauty products have that conception but we also know that there are hydrating alcohols and so i want to like get i want to cut through this notion of you know an alcohol-free product what does that actually mean do you need to look for an alcohol-free product when when is an alcohol a hydrating product like how does that happen i'm just so fascinated about this idea of alcohols and how they can be used in different ways yeah yeah alcohol is a, is a very cool ingredient in my opinion it's it, it can do a lot of different things and i don't know why it gets such a bad rep because you're right it can it can provide all kinds of you know really cool textures and it can it can be really good for your skin as well when used 
uh, a certain way. Also, I want to clarify, like when you say alcohol, you actually mean alcohol because there's also other alcohols like cetyl alcohol. And, yes. And, yeah. You know, th- yeah. those are fatty, um, I mean, yes. or fatty acid alcohols that are, in fact, glycerin is an alcohol too. Sure. Right. Glycerin yeah. is glycerol. Yeah. It's an alcohol. Yeah. So. So it really like when you when we say alcohol, we are covering a very big uh, range of ingredients chemically. Mm-hmm. But alcohol by itself, like the the 40B alcohol or the you know the alcohol that's usually used in toners, I wouldn't say it's really moisturizing or anything. Mm-hmm. But it it does play a role in the astringency sure. of the formula. Or like whenever I get breakouts, I'll put a little alcohol on my breakout, and it does wonders. And and so I think that it has its uses. It sometimes it does. Be long in some of your moisturizers it, it does good than bad in a moisturizer but when it comes to hand sanitizers we notice the drying because of uh, the repeated use and because of how much alcohol there sure. is like 70 percent or more alcohol is a lot of alcohol and you, none of your skincare products are going to have that much alcohol <laughs> Totally. No, that makes sense. And yeah, no, this the acetyl alcohol and you know those those fatty acid alcohols. I think I think it's important just to bring up because I think a lot of times people will see acetyl alcohol on their ingredient list and be like, well, I don't want that. I don't want an alcohol in my product. And it's like, no, it's it's a totally different type of alcohol. <laughs> like, yes. it's it's not what you're thinking. I think people just see the alcohol and it frightens them just because you know they 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 tend to associate alcohols with something that's super drying or super astringent, and that's not always the case. So it's important to just like know the difference when you're looking at these okay so we've talked a little bit about quote-unquote bad ingredients you know things that you do want to avoid things that you personally have on your no list but I want to talk about some of the good ingredients you know vitamin C's the retinols the hydrators AHA's BHA's these things that people do look for in in their products and I want to ask you about them because they're not always the easiest to suss out. Like vitamin C is, I think it's a classic example. There are so many different derivatives of it. There are so many different ways to formulate it because typically vitamin C is water soluble, but then like, you know, you can have a vitamin C oil because you can have a derivative of vitamin C that's oil soluble. So can you just help me explain vitamin C a little bit more? You know, I know that there's L-ascorbic acid, which is like, that's like the, the top one, right? But then like, what, how does it work from there? So it's not really the top one, right? It's top one because it's the simplest form of vitamin C. It's straight vitamin C, but that is not stable. That vitamin C is not stable over time, which is why we have so many different derivatives of vitamin C. There's water-soluble derivatives, there's oil-soluble derivatives, but what these derivatives do is they increase the bioavailability of vitamin C and then they increase the penetration of vitamin C, right? So, and also the stability. Of vitamin C, like your your product is not gonna turn brown how it would if you put straight vitamin C. Maybe it will turn brown eventually, but not as fast um, as it would if it was just straight vitamin C. And also, vitamin C degrades over time, and so the derivatives help it stay stable longer and not degrade into your product. So it kind of extends the shelf life of a product as well. So yeah, some of the ones that I really like is like amino ascorbyl phosphate is really nice. You don't need a lot of it. There's also one of my favorite oil soluble ones is a tetrahexyl decal ascorbate. Fantastic. And yeah, it, that's an oil soluble one, but it, it also increases the uh, bioavailability and like the how deeply the vitamin C penetrates and is effective. So that is also one of my good ones. But yeah, there there are lots of good ingredients that that I look to vitamin C is one of them. There's also like niacinamide that's sodium there's sodium 
there's sodium hyaluronate, there's polyglutamic acid, there's like a lot of different ones that are absolutely beautiful ingredients that I think people should use more. So, Yeah, I'd love to hear more about niacinamide. What are its main purposes? What, what sort of product would you use it for? Because I personally love this ingredient too, and I don't think it gets enough love. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it's a brightening ingredient. It, it has a very, very similar mechanism of action as vitamin C, but not nearly as it, it affects the same uh, molecules as vitamin C, but at an earlier stage than vitamin C. So it still like helps brighten your skin, even skin tone, all of the same things, but you know, it, more gentle, you know? So I like gentle ingredients overall. I, I tend to use those then, you know, some AHAs or some crazy actives that people have to be really careful about. Yeah. Yeah. So, why, why is that? Why do you gravitate towards gentle? Like what's your philosophy behind that? I don't think it's I don't think it's right to put out a product one single product to a consumer that has all this oh you cannot do this with it you have to wear SPF you have to you know only use this at night you only have to like it's a lot of I think that it's a lot of like trust in a consumer or like a lot of stress I think to a consumer, I don't know how else to put it, but I, I just think that you shouldn't expect consumers to know how to use vitamin C, a 25% vitamin C product, or you know uh, how to use like a 15% AHA product. Okay, since she mentioned it, let's talk about AHAs. AHAs are alpha hydroxy acids and they're a form of chemical exfoliators. At low levels, they can actually be pretty gentle and even hydrating, but at high concentrations, like the 15% that she mentioned, they're very potent. When used too frequently or incorrectly, they can break down your skin barrier, resulting in sensitive or inflamed skin. If you're committed to using them though, which I totally get it, stick to one to two times a week as tolerated. But don't forget that AHAs are actually sun sensitizing as well. So you're going to need to be more diligent about SPF application. It's not not fair, I think. And, and I know of so many people that have ruined their skin uh, because of using those because of using those products. I mean, I think that's such a great point that I think while the consumer is very educated and especially now and i do think that you know beauty enthusiasts are, are are so so eager and hungry to learn more and more and more and you know i i am genuinely so impressed about how much people put into research into beauty however that doesn't mean that we're all perfect at it and i do think that you're absolutely right that sometimes it's just it's very easy to go overboard it's so easy and i think it's i think it's actually because of because we've glamorized it so much I think it's because we've glamorized it so much. Like I, I know, like I'll meet some of my cousins, right, who are like 16, 17, like, you know, little cousins. And, and they'll be like, they'll come to me and they'll like text me and they'll be like, oh, which retinol should I be using? And, and, <laughs> and you know, which, which vitamin C should I be? And I'm like, no, you're 17. No, you don't need anything. Like, no, you're not putting these crazy actives on your face. But it really is because we've really, like, we've done such a great job marketing everything and, and glamorizing all these great actives, and which is great. But people just want to use them to use them. And they don't realize that, you know, you're, you're doing a whole lot to your skin when you're just trying these out, you know? So, sure. Um, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating as, I mean, as you are a cosmetic chemist, you know, you have to think about user behavior when you're formulating something. I do. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if everybody does. I hope they do. But, uh, but I definitely do. I do take that into consideration. 
Yeah, I mean, you just said marketing, which kind of brings me into the next thing that I wanted to talk about. To your point that, you know, the market is, it has so much out there and there's so much content and, you know, we're talking about beauty so much and there are so many beauty influencers online and which I enjoy as somebody who is a beauty fan, but that also, you know, it comes with some sticky marketing terms and, you know, things that sometimes will make me cringe or, you know, I'll, I'll see, I'll see a marketing term or I'll see a talking point like online. I'll be like, no, <laughs> that's not true. You know, one thing, that does come to mind is this idea of chemical free like I feel like we see chemical free marketing a lot which as somebody who loves quote-unquote natural and clean beauty I, I always cringe at the idea of chemical free because we know that's just not that's not a thing yes yes that's not a thing that's definitely not a thing yes do you do you have any sort of like these these modern day beauty phrases that um, really get under your skin? There are so many, Alexandra. There's there are so many that that I laugh about. There are so many that I laugh about, like almost on a daily basis, which is so sad. But I do, and yeah, there's like there's people calling themselves clean, which happens a lot when they are nowhere close to clean. Also, also people, you know, I think biodegradable formula. That also is like a pet peeve of mine because biodegradable, even it take even if something takes a hundred years to biodegrade, you can call it biodegradable. But it's not biodegradable at that point. So so that is that is a thing. And then I, I don't know, let's see, some waterless formulas out there are hilarious because it's not that there's no water in there. There is water in there, right? But they just mask it with either a hydrosol or like a aloe vera powder or whatever to, to make it look like there's no water in there. That's annoying. So I would say, yeah, those are synthetic-free or no preservatives. Yeah, preservative-free. Yeah, yeah. All of those, those, are, those are pretty awful. A follow-up question on the biodegradable. Are there formulas that are biodegradable then? I mean, how does that uh, work? So biodegradable is is biodegradable clean is very much regulated in the pesticide industry, but there is no biodegradable regulation when it comes to cosmetics. So people okay. can call something biodegradable based on however long it takes to degrade. But pesticides, the FD, the EPA actually, if it takes more than I think it's five years to if it takes more than five years to degrade, it's not biodegradable. You can't market it as biodegradable. Okay. Right, which is so good, which is so great for pesticides. But for cosmetics, you don't have that. So there is no, there's not even like an approved test of biodegradability. Okay. Like there's no, there's no approved uh, method that people can use, a standard method. So people have like developed their own methods over the years that tell you different things about biodegradability. Because but to call something biodegradable is a very broad term. There's a lot of things involved, like, right? Right? Like what kind of soil, what kind of temperature, what kind of bacteria, what kind, like there's a lot of things to, to call something biodegradable is not as simple as just, okay, this is biodegradable. There's a lot of different things that go on to that. But the only way to for us to know if something is biodegradable, if there is a standard method to test biodegradability and that's not there. so. What do you want to call biodegradable? Like, would you say that if it if it biodegrades in ten years, it's biodegradable, or sure. maybe if it biodegrades in two years, it's biodegradable? You don't we don't know that, so sure. yeah, it's subjective. 
Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, that's this is kind of how we run into the problems with any any of these like labeling and any of this marketing claim is just because in the beauty industry in the states, it's none of this is regulated, so we're all just kind of like making up our own definitions and our own in our own ways of talking about it. But really, I think that's just why transparency is so important in the beauty industry. You know, if you want to make a claim, it's it's just so important to be able to back it up and say, this is actually why we're making the claim. Like, we're calling it clean because, you know, these are our standards of cleanliness. Or we're calling yeah. a product safe because these are our standards of safety. Or, you know, we're calling a product effective for XYZ. And here's how we know that that's to be true. So last but certainly not least, what's your ideal routine? You know, what sort of skincare steps do you take for yourself? What sort of products do you love? What ingredients do you look for? I know we've talked about a few that you already like, but I would just love to know about what you do for yourself. Yeah, so so because I'm like constantly exposed to like different kinds of skincare, my skincare routine is extremely simple. I don't use any crazies in my routine but then there are you know there's there's times when I'll like change it up so so in my skincare routine I would I use a lot of oils a lot of oil-based product I also stopped using soap on my face about four years ago and my skin loves it so I don't use any soap the only cleansers that I use is our our cleansing oils and cleansing balms so I don't use traditional soapy cleansers on my face and that's fantastic that's going fantastic for me so far and i have combination skin so i do use a lot of oils i use i love oils i use like bombs uh night and day and spf no matter what definitely spf and what else every now and then i'll i'll if if my my skin is feeling like super congested then i'll like do a nice mask or you know maybe even an aha treatment every once in a while maybe like once every two months or something then i feel like it but but otherwise my skincare routine is very very simple keep it simple i like it if you asked me a couple like maybe six seven years ago if i would ever put oils on my face i would cringe <laughs> and i would be like no but i i love them it was actually suzanne at, at one love organics that introduced me uh, mm. to oils and she said she gave me a really good tip actually she said that to start instead of putting oil straight on your face Try mixing a little bit of oil in your moisturizer in your hand mm. and then put it on your face. And that was a game changer for me. I think that was fantastic. Like I love um, that too. Ever since then I've just I've just loved it. And and I, I really think that people should be open to oils, not yeah. you know, just straight water based stuff. So sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us. These discussions are so fascinating just because there's there's so much nuance with it and there's so much to learn and there's so and if you're a beauty fan at all, I think that we could all benefit from just knowing a little bit more about ingredients and how they work together and how you can uh, apply them to your skin and do so safely. Of course, this was so, such a fun conversation for sure. Thank you for having me over. Hey guys, just popping back in here to say thanks for joining us this week at Clean Beauty School. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. If you're looking for more beauty content or just wellness content in general, don't forget to check out our website, mindbodygreen.com, our Instagram, mindbodygreen, and of course, our parent podcast, the Mind Body Green Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review us. Thanks again. See you next week.